Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk radio show. My guest for this morning is Dr. Randy Watt. She is a retired American language arts teacher, a published author, a professional editor, a certified harmony life coach, holistic emotional intelligence coach, NLP practitioner, and communication mastery certified coach. Her life's journey has taken her to 60 countries on 40 continents. From one of those destinations came her memoir that epitomizes her view of what life is all about. Because I believe in me, my Egyptian fantasy came through. Dr. Randy's passion for life and humanity have earned her many awards and honors as well as culminating in 2020 when top female professional and empowered women recognizes Dr. Randy as its top female visionary and Hall of Fame inductee and in 2021, Educator of the Decade. Dr. Randy and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and what it means to believe, don't dream big, dream bigger in this new year, new me. Good morning, Dr. Randy. Happy New Year, and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Johnny. I'm, I'm just great. It's, uh, we had bad storms in Atlanta last night, but the sun is shining. You know, after the storm comes the sun, so it's a beautiful day here. And it's going to be 70 degrees, so I'm excited. <laughs> Fantastic. Likewise here in Dallas, sun shining, and it's going to be about 70 degrees as well. Well, it is a pleasure to have you with me. Because I Believe in Me is an extremely entertaining, heartfelt read. I love the wonderful pictures in the book. It really connects me to, in the moment, so to speak, you experiencing all the things you experience in the book. Congratulations on this release. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure writing this book. But the experiences that I acquired before writing the book are more amazing. I was Living in Egypt was a life-changing experience for me, one that when I came back as an American, I had also become an Egyptian woman for those three months I lived there. Fantastic. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. That could take a while, but I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) We have the whole hour, by the way. (laughs) Wasn't the greatest in the world. My mother was amazing. She was a teacher and inspired me every day. But my father was an alcoholic and uh, not the kindest person. Um, he was not good for myself, my self-ego, my self-esteem. So I grew up very shy, believe it or not. I was very smart, graduated as valedictorian in my high school class, but I always felt like I was hiding in the background, not wanting to be seen because of the words that my father would say to me. Also, from the age of 15 to 20, I did not walk. I had a serious left knee injury during my physical education class, which sounds like not a big deal, but it was. And it took me exactly five years to learn to walk again, even though the doctors told me I would never walk again. You know, you're young, you think, Mm -hmm. I can do anything. And that's part of, again, of of my motto of believing in myself. I believed the impossible, that I could teach myself to walk again, and I did. Okay, I went to Marshall uh, University in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, to study language arts. Initially, Johnny, I wanted to be a music teacher. In fact, mm-hmm. I really wanted to be a movie star, but I was so shy growing up that I knew <laughs> that probably was not a good idea. So I decided to be a music teacher. But at my university, and this was the only one I wanted to go to because it had family history, all my family had gone to Marsh University, I decided that I would major in music and minor in English. Well, that was not possible. You had to have two majors. So knowing that music teachers were not that easy to find, you know, to get jobs, so I decided to go ahead and do language arts. And language arts, by the way, is not just English. I was able, when I was graduated in 1971, to teach not only grammar and, you know, basic writing, but literature, both in American and British lit, but also I could teach journalism, uh, drama, and public speaking. And during my 37 years of teaching, I did teach all of those at one time or the other. Um, immediately after graduating from 
Marcy University, and starting grad school that summer, I met the love of my life, my husband, Bill. We were engaged in six weeks, married in eight months, and until December 15, 2019, when he passed away, sadly, from lung cancer, we had been married almost 48 years. He was my, my flame mate, my twin mate. You know, you hear the expression that when somebody, your, your mate, mm-hmm. passes away, that you feel like you've lost half of yourself. Well, I felt that way. Um, and so the 2020 was a difficult year for me, not only because of the pandemic, but because of the grief. Okay, getting back to when I was first married, though. I spent uh, 18 years teaching English and language arts in two counties in West Virginia, where I was born. But then in 1989, dreaming bigger, Randy decides, I've had enough of the small-town life. I want to see the world. I want to be spread my wings and fly. So I moved to Metro Atlanta six months before my husband was able to because he had to wait to get his transfer with his insurance company. So here I go from a small, royal, all-white school in West Virginia to a predominantly African-American school in Atlanta, Georgia. Trust me, Johnny, that was an eye-opening experience. Um, <laughs> taught me a lot of new stuff that I didn't know before. But I persevered and won them over after one year of teaching them because I was one of the minority teachers mm-hmm. in the building. And the second year, I was mom award to all these kids, high school <laughs> level. So I spent, yeah, I spent like 12 years in DeKalb County, if you know anything about Metro Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But then I just... Mm-hmm. It was time to not have all this traveling because traffic in Atlanta is horrendous if you've ever been here. So I decided to try to get a job in my home county of Gwinnett, and I ended up teaching the last seven years very close to home. My last year I was teaching gifted education. I'm certified gifted, too. In fact, in the 70s, I was one of the pioneers in the gifted education program in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. We created the program for the Marsh University teachers, become gifted certified and so uh, that was quite an experience too so anyway after I retired in 2008 I was so excited I thought 37 years of teaching yay I'm going to be free I don't have to get up early I can do whatever I want Johnny I was so bored because you don't take somebody like me and say okay you have nothing to do that's not who I am I'm not ready for that rocking chair I hope I'll never be ready for the rocking chair So I was really bored and really depressed. I tried to get volunteer work. Believe it or not, nobody wanted any volunteers. That was shocking. (laughs) But then in 2011, I started, I I joined Facebook, which is good sometimes and also not so good sometimes. (laughs) But I happened to meet this young man who was opening an English language center in Cairo, Egypt. And as soon as he found out I was an English teacher and that I had taught 37 years, he offered me a job on Facebook. Well, mm-hmm. I thought that was a little insane, but I thought, okay, well, it's interesting. I'd always wanted to teach overseas, but really never thought that much about it and, and you know, had that opportunity. So I went to Egypt in May of 2011. This was a several months after the first revolution in Egypt had ended. Um, on January 25th, 2011, I'm saying the state because you'll see how significant it is later, um, they end up with from their 30-year dictator, Mubarak. And there was a big celebration. In fact, I'd already made some Egyptian friends by this time, and by Skype, I was in Tahrir Square with them celebrating the overthrow of this horrible dictator. So things were still not great in May when I went to visit a friend. Um, I was going to go to her wedding Never met her, never went to the wedding. Long story, I won't get into that. But I made a lot of friends at the hotel I was staying in, and I did go to this center called Spread Your, Spread Your English for an interview. Well, to be honest with you, I was not impressed. As a teacher, I'm thinking, I can do better than this. And the man was kind of rude to me. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I really want to be associated with this school. But I went home thinking, okay, no, I don't want to do that. This is my, one of my spiritual things, Johnny, and I don't tell this to too many people. Of course, I guess today I'm telling it to a lot. Um, I kept having these dreams for like two or three months, every night, the same dream. And I never remember my dreams, Johnny. But there was this voice, this heavenly voice 
the voice that I interpreted as being the voice of God saying to me every night the same thing, Randy, I want you to go to Egypt. The young people there need you. You can change lives. Do not worry. I will protect you. You will be safe. You must go to Egypt. Every night I dreamed that. Well, I never told my family about this because they would have thought I was insane. Mm-hmm. But as defiant as I was and stubborn as I can be, I decided to go because I really believed this was a message from God saying, you must go to Egypt. You are needed. So against my husband and my son, Mark, um, and I had I had one son, by the way, um, advice, I went to Egypt. So on November the 3rd, 2011, I boarded a plane by myself to go to Egypt. A week after I got there, Johnny, the second revolution started. I was living three blocks from Tahrir Square, the center of the revolution where all the violence took place. For the next three months, I was surrounded by violence, protesting, gunfire, um, death, injury, you name it. One night in December 2011, I listened to 12 people die and 120 people get injured in a gun battle between the military police and the protesters exactly one half block from my house. I cried all night, not out of fear, but because I could hear their screams and I knew people were getting hurt and dying. And then all of a sudden, Johnny, there was total silence. It was shocking. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I have to get up and go to school and teach. I was a dedicated teacher, and I needed to go and teach at the center. And that was the area that I had to go to to get to school. So I walked up there after I got dressed. I walked up there. There was nothing, Johnny, except barbed wire all around, all the way around the street, but no trash, no people, nothing. No signs of any violence except for the barbed wire. So I thought, okay, what do I do? So I went in the other direction and found a metro station and got myself to school. Well, I was obviously not the best in condition to teach that day, so pretty much my adult young students helped me get through that day. We talked about the revolution, their feelings on it. Some of them had lost brothers and sisters who had been killed in the violence. It was a very sad day for me but one I will never, ever forget. And it made me so much more appreciative of being American, even though recently, as we know, we have seen violence in our own country. But at that time, that was unheard of in the United States to see that kind of violence. So when I came home, Johnny, those Mm -hmm. dreams started again. I came home in February 2012. I spent my three months there, had the most amazing experience, which, which we'll talk about later, but you wanted my life stories. We came back. The voices started, that voice started again. This time it said, okay, Randy, I kept you safe. You had the adventure of your lifetime. Now I want you to write your book. You can do this. You've always wanted to write a book, but you never had time to do it. You were always grading other people's work. So write the story of Egypt, your adventure. So I did. Four months later, because I believed in me, my Egyptian fantasy was born. And it was published in, in November of 2012. Okay. In 2013, I decided that to launch the book, I needed to go back to Egypt. So I did. Mm-hmm. At that time, I had opened one school in Egypt. I decided to do more. I opened a school called Rise Up with two of my former male students. So my book launch and my first book talk was at my school. This was an amazing center. We were teaching English and German. Now, I couldn't be there to be a teacher, but we were hiring people. But remember, this is still the revolution is still going on. There is still no government set up. The people have no idea how to set up that democracy they want, and they are too proud to ask for help. So everything is still in chaos. The economy is terrible. People are starving. They have no jobs. Total chaos. Traffic lights aren't working. I mean, it was just a disaster. So even though we really tried hard to make this school work, we didn't get the students we wanted, so sadly we had to close. Okay, well, that didn't stop Randy. <laughs> I decided <laughs> a year later to open another school, but this time it was going to be a nursery school because the mothers were finally having to go back to work and they needed places to put their children. So I opened a school with my friend, uh, Samar Farouk, 
there was this amazing young lady, and I actually wrote short stories and poems and all this to teach the young students, because I was now writing in all the genres, uh, at, at my school, and I was teaching via Skype. I was teaching the little four- and five-year-olds English and their parents. Well, that was going okay sometimes, not so well other times, because of this six-, seven-hour time difference and the Internet that was so unstable, that didn't always work so well. But then to add insult to that, my friend Samar, who was young, got very ill and ended up being in the hospital for several months. So, sadly, that school had to close as well. But, you know, Johnny, I don't consider them as failures. I never call them failures. I say they closed because we did everything right. It's just the economy was not ready for us to open up our schools. And one day I want to start another school somewhere. I'm just not sure where it will be yet. That's one of my dreams. Okay, so as I said, I wrote my first memoir, but then I decided to start writing short stories for young, for young adults and for children. I write poetry. I'm a blogger. I have my own YouTube channel, which is always motivational. Uh, I write magazine articles. I became the editor of Morocco Pins with one of my friends, my Moroccan friend, Ayu Katie. And we encourage young, non-native English speakers to write in English, and I edit it, and we put it in our magazine. You'll have to check it out. It's called Morocco Pins. It's an amazing magazine. And um, this way, young people from all over the world get to be published writers for free. It's pretty cool. Okay, so I continue to write, but I had such a bad experience with my publisher for my Egypt book that I decided I don't, I'm not going to publish for a while. I'm just going to write. Writing made me happy. But then I decided, okay, I need to I need to get this out there. This is my legacy. I want my words to be out there. I did get published in some anthologies, but I wanted my own works to be out there. So I've written a novel called Random Wonderings. In fact, okay, another experience. Um, in 2014, <laughs> remember I told you I didn't walk because of my left leg? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It came so bad, Johnny, that I finally had to admit that all the number of times I taught myself to walk, it wasn't going to happen without some help. So I had a total knee replacement in June of 2014, okay? I did great. I had four months of physical therapy to learn how to walk again, but I did great. I was on my way to the gym on December 29th of the same year, and I had a horrible car accident. And I broke eight bones in my body, including a C1, C2 fracture in my neck, I have an 8-inch plate and six pins in my left arm. I had four fractured ribs, two fractures in my left pelvis. I had a collapsed left lung and a lacerated spleen. I spent eight months in physical therapy, 93 days wearing a neck brace, and two months in that cast, and my wrist no longer bends properly, but hey, I'm here. I had four trauma doctors. That was my second miracle. My first one was teaching myself how to walk. The second one was recovering from this horrible accident when the doctors told me, you should not be here. They had to cut me out of the car. And, you know, Johnny, I never lost consciousness. It was hmm. amazing. I didn't, it didn't think I was hurt. I assumed my body went into shock. So when they told me I had eight broken bones, I said, that's ridiculous. I, that's, that's not possible. But anyway, so after that, um, I still continued to write. And But, you know, just helping, and I started, I was tutoring people online for free internationally, but again, that became an issue with time differences and poor internet in some of the third world countries in which I was teaching. But, you know, I wanted to teach, I wanted to continue to do the best I could to, to make a difference in the world. Okay, as I told you in 2019, my husband passed away after 31 days in the hospital. I put him in there with double pneumonia on November 14th. On December the 6th, he had a lung biopsy because they couldn't get rid of the pneumonia. On December the 9th, they told us that he had lung cancer. December the 15th, he was gone that quickly. So as I said earlier, I was devastated. I was able to overcome all the physical problems in my life, but I guess the guilt of not being able to save my husband was just too much for me because I'm kind of like a control freak. You know, a lot of teachers are like that. So living with just my... My dog, because my son lives in Germany, he's the art director for Reader's Digest and is married to a German girl. It was just Savannah and me, isolated in this big house, not 
feeling I can go out safely. So I was miserable. But then in March of 2020, I was listening to this podcast about um, with this woman who was a coach, and she was going to offer this coaching class. And I thought to myself, this is God speaking to me. He's telling you this is another way, another platform for you to get your message out there. So from April until July 1st, that's when I became certified as a life harmony coach, holistic emotional intelligence coach, NLP, and communication mastery person. So now, Johnny, what I'm doing is I want people to tell their stories. This is important as an English teacher. And many people mm-hmm. do, not have, have, do not have a clue how to write their stories. So I'm becoming a book writing consulting coach. And because I'm, I've edited so many papers, I am now a master editor. And, and I'm getting people to hire me to edit their work. I haven't taught anybody how to write a book yet, but that's coming. But I am editing now and, and starting my third career at the age of 71. Dream bigger. Believe in yourself. Never give up. This is my life. Fantastic. That's really, truly wonderful. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hop Hopper. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Dr. Randy Watt. She is a retired American language arts teacher, a published author, a professional editor, a certified harmony life coach, holistic emotional intelligence coach, NLP practitioner, and communication mastery certified coach. Her life's journey has taken her to 60 countries on four continents. From one of the destinations came her memoir that epitomizes her view of what life is all about. Because I believed in me, my Egyptian fantasy came true. Dr. Randy's passion for life and humanity has earned her many awards and honors, as well as culminating in 2020 when top female professional and empowered women recognized Dr. Randy as its top female visionary and Hall of Fame inductee and 2021 Educator of the Decade. We're having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and what it means to believe, don't dream big, dream bigger in this new year, new me. Dr. Randy, who were some of the influences in your life when you were growing up? Well, it would definitely have to be my mother because she was a teacher and everybody loved mm-hmm. her and admired her. She taught uh, vocational home economics for many years, but then they eliminated that program. And believe it or not, she became an English teacher. Mm-hmm. So she was an English teacher after I became an English teacher, so I beat her to that. But she was an amazing woman. She was kind-hearted. Everybody loved her. But I also had a great uncle who, by the name, by the way, his name was Benjamin Franklin. He was named after, we are related to the great Benjamin <laughs> Franklin, very distantly. And yes. he was named, but he was a Marshall English professor, and he was brilliant. In fact, I remember as a child having to, when you would talk to him, you had to have an English dictionary in your hand because he purposely used words that nobody knew, and you'd have to look them up to try to figure out what in the world he was saying. But that was the way he was virus <laughs> to increase our vocabulary because words were so important to him. And he used them with such meaning that he wanted us to learn to not just be, you know, ordinary, but to speak out and use words that were dynamic and meaningful and powerful. So I loved listening to him. Uh, he literally taught until he was like 75 at Marshall, and he died at the age of 89. He was putting money in a parking meter, and he passed out from a heart attack. That's how dynamic he was. So the last day he was still very active. And his mind was brilliant. Very, very interesting. That's really a very interesting story. When did the travel bug bite you and drive you to become a world traveler? Please tell us a little bit about that. Well, actually, my traveling started years before I went to Egypt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was like in my 30s, and we were still living in West Virginia. And I decided it was always my dream to make that once-in-a-lifetime trip to Europe. Okay, so my husband had been in the service during the Vietnam period, and um, so he knew a little bit about Germany because, you know, and he was stationed in Germany, by the way, as an intelligence person listening to the Czechs and the Russians talk, okay, during the Vietnam period. And so 
he said, yes, we can do this. So we rented a car, and I think we did six countries that, that first summer. But then that wasn't enough. The travel bug hit me, and I wanted to see more. So we went back to Europe maybe about four or five other times. Then we decided to go to Asia. In fact, we were in China in 1986. This was three years after the Chinese government actually opened up Chinese, China to tourist travel. And it was so different than it is today, of course, very backward by today's standards. I mm-hmm. was a, kind of a freak because I had long blonde hair and blue eyes. Seriously, Johnny, I would walk down the street and, and all the places we were in China, and, and people would run over and grab my hair because they wanted to touch my hair. It kind of freaked me out at first, but after a while I just kind of said, okay. And the, the Chinese students were carrying around English dictionaries. When they found out that I was an English teacher, they always wanted to talk to me. So it was an amazing experience. But then, like I said, I wasn't satisfied with just North America, Europe, and Asia as my continents. I wanted to go to Africa, and this is where mm-hmm. my love, my major, my passion is in Africa. Not just Egypt, okay, but I love South Africa, Kenya, Swaziland, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia, where the, where the African animals live. Mm-hmm. Trip to South Africa was in 2000. And believe me, when I made that first game drive into Kruger National Park, I was like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't get enough of it. I took so many pictures. I was ooing and aahing. I was really, I was so excited. And it was so wonderful to see these animals in the wild. And I know their life is hard and they have to do whatever they can to survive. But it kind of made me not so, ha- not so appreciative of zoos now. I know zoos protect the animals. But seeing the animals in the wild is a whole different experience and meeting the African people. So I went to Kenya after that, and I've been to eight African countries now, including Morocco, which was another experience. One of my European things, we just crossed the Mediterranean and went there. But I am now working with my friend North Santosian in Kenya with African Mm -hmm. Nomad Conservation. He is now a game ranger working in some of the parks and saving the elephants, the rhinos, and even the giraffes that are now endangered. And I'm the USA Regional Director with him. I make YouTube videos. I raise money for his projects. We just raised money recently for a um, um, for some, some, some equipment that he needed to help supervise and survey the animals and find them more easily. But recently, my last trip uh, in March of 2019, before my husband got so ill, we went back to South Africa, Swaziland, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Zambia, and I met a man in Zimbabwe named Bonani, and I actually got to walk with two of his lions and pet them. Well, I fell in love with them. <laughs> and so now, as soon as the pandemic is over, I'm going to do something I can, I can do to help Bonani save his, his lions. Because what mm-hmm. he's trying to do is a lot of the lions are – inbreeding now and they're getting all these birth defects so he was trying to take animals lions from different families and breed them to try to get a pure breed of lions and then putting them back out into the wild so you know i had to be with that i also have another project with each of those i'm an environmentalist one of my best friends is mahmoud Hisana. he is now an ambassador and a doctor he's Mm -hmm. an ambassador for uganda even though he's an Egyptian, but he has a project called World Peace Forest Africa. I've been a part of this for many, many years. What he is doing in his farm 45 minutes out of Cairo is growing moringa trees. Have you ever heard of the moringa tree? Mm-mm. No, not at all. Scientists call it the miracle tree because it will grow almost anywhere, and if you had nothing else to eat, you could eat any part of this tree and survive. They wow. also use it water for cattle. They can use it to purify water in countries where it needs that, you know, where the mm-hmm. water needs purification. And what he wants to do, when he has enough of these trees planted, he's going to use them to reforest Africa and Egypt, and he wants to use university students to do this. So you know I had to be a part of this. So I am the honorary president of World Peace Forest Africa. Very, very interesting. What was the most significant memory from your world-traveling days that still impacted your thoughts today? Wow. Well, it has to do with animals. I mean, I love Paris. Paris is my favorite city in all the world, and I love Hong mm-hmm. Kong. Mm-hmm. I have 
petted and played with two two-year-old cheetahs in South Africa. I have held a panda in China. I have ridden a camel in behind the Great Pyramids in Cairo, in Giza. I have ridden donkeys in Santorini up the hill. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, like I said, walked with the, the, the lions. I rode a, an ostrich in South Africa. I mean, I, I've done something. I've, I've gone, walked on the Great Wall of China, gone up to Sea Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. She didn't come out that day, but it was a beautiful day and a nice walk. I've done all these amazing things, but I do honestly believe that the first thing that I've said about interacting with animals in the wild has just been the most memorable of all. I treasure all my memories. I could have written, Johnny, so many stories. I chose to write the story about Egypt because God told me to do that and also because that was a story I think needed to be told to help the people. But Mm -hmm. uh, I've been very blessed to be able to travel the world and experience so many things and be part of the local economy. And, you know, living in Egypt, like I said, I had to learn to be a local. That was a hard life for me because when I'm traveling the rest of the time, I'm at four- and five-star hotels. But that was an experience. But I wouldn't trade any of my memories, and they're so amazing. Like I said, one day... I'm going to write my memoir, but it's going to be about all of my adventures. It'll probably be a thousand pages long, though, so I may have to do a series <laughs> because it would be too long. Very, very interesting. As far as talking about your book, mm-hmm. please share with us the wonderful memories triggered by some of the beautiful pictures sprinkled all over the memoir. Okay, well, I'm kind of a. A Magnuna girl. Magnuna is Arabic for crazy, but crazy in a good way, Johnny. <laughs> Always up for an adventure. I'm, I'm a risk taker, but not, I mean, not a dangerous yeah. risk taker, but I, I'm not afraid to step out of my comfort zone. I mean, going to Egypt to teach immediately after the first revolution, not knowing what's going to happen, is taking a risk, okay? But mm-hmm. I had such amazing experiences there, besides my teaching, and it was the most wonderful teaching experience of my life. I taught young adults, and they embraced me because, in Egypt, sadly, most of the educators do not really get connected with their students. They lecture, they tell them to read the book, they give them a test. I interacted with my students like they'd never experienced before. And they said, you care about us. We feel that you care about us. So that was amazing. But I also got to, uh, like I said, ride on a camel. I actually crashed a wedding reception of people I didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I met... Um, one of the bridesmaids in the bathroom of our hotel where the event was taking place. And she said, why don't you come to our, our reception? I said, well, I don't know where the bride and groom. She goes, it doesn't matter. Come on. So, of course, I was the only American there, and I had a party dress that I would bought. So I put on my party dress, and I went to the, par- I went to the other thing. And it was so funny because uh, the, the, the bridesmaid was going to seat me at a table that had guys in it. But no, 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 that was not acceptable. The, the uh, older ladies came and got me and took me to the table with the women. But they treated me like a princess. I actually went up and danced with the bride and groom. They treated me as if I was one of the family, and I didn't know any. I still don't know their names to this day. I didn't stay for the dinner because I felt like I really shouldn't do that. But I did have the best time. That was one great experience. Okay, there was a Southside convention of all these politicians, okay? And it was all, you know, fenced off. Well, I had a crazy friend, I still do, named um, Mustafa, who's a famous archaeologist. In fact, he was one of the leaders of the revolution, always getting hurt. But he decided that we needed to find out what they were talking about. So he convinced the people that were letting the dignitaries in that I was a Hollywood movie star. And he got us in, and we were in the front row sitting with all these dignitaries. And they were coming over and shaking my hand. They had no idea who I was. But... We got to listen to everything. Of course, it was in Arabic, and, and Mustafa was translating things to me, but that was a funny story, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I, I, I did go to a, a legitimate engagement party with a friend of mine, a dentist friend. I carried a flag one day when the protesting was not so violent and marched with the protesters near my flat that I lived in. Um, what else did I do? Oh, I rode on the camels, but I also did a Nile River cruise, several of those with my students, and ate a lot of koshri. Koshri has become my famous, my favorite Egyptian 
Mio. In fact, my Egyptian family that are living with me now um, are going to she, a Manny's fixing kosher today just for me. Um, what else did I do? Remember, January 25, 2011 was the overthrow of Mubarak. But on January 25, 2012, there was a huge celebration. There were two flags that were carried from Terrera Street in El Doki to Terrera Square. Okay? I actually saw them that day. I was teaching from the 14th floor of my school building, and there's a video on my YouTube channel of me watching these flags go down the street. There were hundreds of people necessary to carry each flag, okay? So that afternoon, after my few students, most of them stayed home that day or, or went to celebrate, um, left, I decided that I had to go to Terrer Square. So one of my students named Heba, who promised her parents she wouldn't go, <laughs> snuck out with me, and we headed to Terrer Square to celebrate. There were two million people in the square, Johnny, two million people. So I didn't want to look mm-hmm. like an American, so I put a hijab on, a scarf that Heba gave me. We came, there was underground metro, so we came out of the underground metro into this huge crowd that you could barely move to be a part of the celebration of the first anniversary of the revolution. And the first person that sees me says, hi, American. And I said, oh, how did you know? Your blue eyes. So I didn't stay very long because I was getting the wrong attention. They all knew I was an American, and they were excited I was there, but I wanted to be just one of them. I wanted to be a part of the the crowd. I didn't want to be this American with their celebration. So we only stayed about 15 minutes and left. But that was one of my memories that I will never, ever, ever forget. I went shopping with a lot of my friends. I met two famous uh, female artists in Egypt because one of my friends was an artist and he had all these connections. Just, it's just so many things that happened to me. I, oh, one day mm-hmm. with one of my students and we went to um, Old Cairo. Old Cairo is so beautiful and the oldest mosque in North Africa was there. So I put on another hijab that I actually borrowed from a shopkeeper because I didn't have the money to pay for it. I bought a dress from him but I didn't have enough money for the, the hijab, the scarf, and I went and prayed with the ladies on a Friday in this famous old mosque. So I've done these amazing things, Johnny, things that I had to write about, things that God told me to write about. That's wonderful, really wonderful. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hop Hopper. My guest is Dr. Randy Watt. She's a retired American language arts teacher, a published author, a professional editor, a certified harmony life coach, holistic emotional intelligence coach, NLP practitioner, and communication mastery certified coach. Her life's journey has taken her to 60 countries on four continents. From one of her destination came her memoir that epitomized her view of what life is all about. Because I believe in me, my Egyptian fantasy came true. Dr. Randy's passion for life and humanity have also earned her many awards and honors, as well as culminating in 2020 when top female professional and empowered women recognizes Dr. Randy as its top female visionary and Hall of Fame inductee and 2021 Educator of the Decade. We're having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and what it means to believe, don't dream big, dream bigger in this new year, new me. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Dr. Randy, one of the things that your book covered, this is sort of a global effect, so to speak, kindness. How did the acts of kindness ended as a chapter in your book? Well, the Egyptian people, even though they were going through such a hard time, you know, trying to re- find enough money to feed their families, they were always so genuine and so kind. I didn't speak any Arabic, and I only still only know a few phrases because most of my Egyptian friends that I'm still connected with speak English, and so we don't speak Arabic. But I had to learn to do so many things. Now, my friends helped me because I made a lot of friends there, and my students would help me. But after a while, you know, I had to learn to become self-sufficient myself. But there were times that I just couldn't do it, and I could always find somebody to help me. And when I first started teaching, we were in one building 
near the Nile River, but there was no metro station close to it. So I always had to get a, ca- a taxi cab to get to the school and to get home. Well, getting the taxi cab to get to the school was not a problem, but I was on the street where the school was. It was always so difficult to get a taxi cab to stop for you. So my, all of my students and every one of my six classes that I taught during the week, there was always someone in the school, in that class, that would take me home in their car. So that was one act of kindness. Secondly, being American, I always overshopped for food. I found this nice little grocery store eight blocks from where I was living. But I didn't have a lot of time to go shopping every day, which a lot of the Egyptians do because they don't have cars. So I would end up having four bags of groceries on one arm and four bags on the other. And it would include things like milk and, and orange juice and all these canned food and all these heavy things so that by the, about four blocks from my house, I would start to thinking, okay, now which bags do you not really need? You can just leave them here, give the food to somebody because your arms are killing you and you can't carry these anymore. Believe it or not, I would always find someone that would come to my rescue. One time it was three high school kids coming home from school. Another time it was a university student, a male, that helped me get home. I even had an elderly lady help me carry my groceries home. Uh, It was always amazing. I remember one time um, it had been a very bad revolutionary night, and I had gotten this taxi cab driver, but all the roads around my house had been closed down and he couldn't find a way to get to my school he said he was so angry and so upset and he really didn't speak english well but finally in his frustration he stopped the car in the middle of the road and said get out and i said what i can't get out i don't know where i'm going he said you have to get out i have i cannot get you there he said this kind of in broken english so i got out of the car he didn't take any money So I'm standing on the corner there, knowing I'm going to be late for school, having no idea where I am, because this was early in the the first month of being in Egypt. And a taxi cab driver with a university student stopped and said, you look lost. And I said, I am. I said, I can't get to school. And he goes, don't worry, I will get you there. And he found a way. It took us 40 minutes to get to my school. It would normally have taken, he told me, five minutes. But he got me there, and he didn't even charge me. So that's another act of kindness. Um, Mm -hmm. One day I couldn't get a taxi cab, and one of my students, who did not have a car, walked me home. It was a 45-minute walk. Another day I couldn't get a taxi cab to get to school, and two university students walked me to school. It was not in their direction, and they refused to take any money for for their kindness. I always had this, these, these opportunities happen. All these experiences happened to me. The people were so kind. I got invited to so many homes for home-cooked meals. Uh, my students brought me gifts. Um, it, it was just overwhelming, and I, I fell in love with them. And I had to write this book because of my love for them, and I wanted to tell their story. And I've done so many interviews, John, including this one over the years, about Egypt, trying to help them. And I've created videos on my YouTube channel trying to help them. And as you know, sadly, their revolution and their independence didn't go as they they wanted it to. Uh, They're still struggling. I'm not fond of Sisi, and many of them are not fond of Sisi. He is doing things to um, rebuild Egypt, but he's also building new prisons. And people, because I know this for a fact, or getting arrested for no reason and thrown in prison. And if anybody says anything on the street that's against the government and there's somebody there that's with the government, they are arrested. And this is not, this is not um, just, you know, hearsay. I hear this from, I mean, this is not, this is factual is what I'm trying to say. I hear this from people who've had family members arrested, so I know this is happening. So the world doesn't really know all the things that are still going on in Egypt. They're still struggling. And so I pray for them all the time. But I have many Egyptian friends that are my family. I connect with them every day. So I'm still involved with being Egyptian. By the way, my Egyptian name is Rere, R-E-R-E. That's my name they gave me. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. Did your students embrace your idea of belief and dream larger? Absolutely. In fact, the ones that are still connected with me, and they're quite a few, believe it or not, 
anytime I talk to them, they'll say, you know what, Randy, I'm still believing and dreaming bigger. And they'll come to me, what can I do now? I'm, I'm stuck. I've got all this education, and I don't know what to do with it. And I, I've actually helped them get scholarships in Europe. I've helped them get scholarships here. Several of my students have gotten the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the scholarships here and have come here, and they've been hosted in my home. Um, yeah, some of them have gotten an international job. I keep telling them, if plan A doesn't work, try plan B, plan C, plan D. Do not give up. Take the risk, dream bigger, believe. And they do. So they always joke me. If, I, if I'm having a frustrating day and I'm saying, oh, I'm so frustrated today, they go, hey, Randy, dream bigger, believe. So they throw it back at me sometimes. <laughs> me laugh because, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Wonderful. Now that you have lived and experienced life in a Muslim country, how do you see Islam? Well, you know, when I lived there, I didn't really know about it. Funny, funny experience. Um, there was a during they, they pray five times a day. I don't know if you know that, but yes. Mm-hmm. On the loudspeaker, there would be the call to prayer. The first time I saw it, I was in my house, and it terrified me. I ran out in the street, thinking we were being invaded or attacked or something, and I wanted to figure out what I needed to do next. And then I saw the people in the streets put down their their rugs, and they were praying. I'm thinking. That doesn't look like we're being attacked unless they're praying because we're being attacked. So finally, some of my friends explained to me, this was like, I'd only been there a few days, that mm-hmm. they, they have a call to prayer, and they can do it on the, in the cities, they do it on the big microphones, so that mm-hmm. they can hear it in the streets. So, you know, I was enthralled by that. So when I came home, I mean, I learned a little bit about it when I was there, but I really didn't have time because I was busy teaching and just trying to survive. Believe me, I was trying to survive on my salary, which was not much because I was being charged double and triple what they were being charged for everything because of being a, an American and, a, you know, a tourist and all that. So um, when I came home, I decided I had to learn more about this religion. So I bought a book on Islam, and I also, one of my students recommended a book in, in English on the Koran. So I've read the Koran several times in English, and I've read several books on Islam, and I'm pretty proficient in knowledge about it now. Um, there are things that I don't like, of course, because I'm a Christian and a devout Christian. But basically, Islam is just like any other religion. It's to teach the people how to live good lives. And the moderates know that you can't take everything literally in any book, including the Bible. But there are radicals, of course, in every religion, and I have met some of those. And, of course, they do not remain my friends because I don't believe in hatred and, you know, disliking someone just because they don't believe the same way you do. But I have so many friends that are probably three, 4,000 friends around the world that are Muslims, and we are a family, and that's the way it should be. So I embraced Islam when I, when I was there. I would never convert because that's not who I am. But I understand it, and I appreciate their religion, and uh, I respect it. That's wonderful. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading Because I Believe in Me? Well, you know, before I wrote one word of this book, I decided I would like for one day for it to be translated into Arabic and into some other countries. So I wrote it as if you're sitting there beside me, and I'm telling you my story. And I wanted it to be something that everybody, if you have limited English skills, could read and understand. I think you've, you learned that when you were reading. It's very simple, very basic. It's never going to mm-hmm. be... Classic. I didn't write it to be a great classic. I wanted my people, my readers, to feel that, hey, I'm sitting beside you, and this is, you can feel my passion for Egypt, and I'm telling you my stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly that happened to me. And you know, I succeeded because everybody that reads my book tells me, I felt you were sitting beside me telling me the story, and I could feel your passion. That's what a book is supposed to do, right? Communicate mm-hmm. the message you want. So I succeeded. The book title is long, because I believe to me my Egyptian fantasy came true. It was a Facebook contest. I could name all my chapters. That was easy. But I couldn't think of a title for it. I wanted it to be about me, but I wanted it to be about Egypt. I had a contest. A hundred people from all over the world competed in it. But ironically, two Egyptians won it. Because I believed in me was 
from one one Egyptian who was one of my students, and the other one, uh, my Egyptian fantasy came true, was from my Egyptian dentist friend. The cover, which is me sitting, ironically, with weird legs and weird arms, sitting on a camel with the pyramids <laughs> beside me, behind me, I mean, was written or was created by a real Egyptian friend who was a physical education teacher, but also this naturally talented artist who now is in Dubai making lots of money. He created this cover for me. And, of course, you know it has 153 pictures in it. And even though I'm an English teacher, I know that pictures also tell stories. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people are very cool, so I put my stories in there. Forty-five pictures should not be in there, Johnny. My publisher said the DPI is not good enough because I had gotten them from my friends who had taken mm-hmm. these pictures with their phone cameras, with their camera phones. And so my son said, he's an art director for Reader's Digest, said, I can't, I can't raise the DPI. My publisher said, I can't raise the DPI. A 15-year-old genius Egyptian boy who was a friend of mine at the time said, Randy, let me see what I can do. Johnny, in 45 minutes, those 45 pictures were raised to 300 or more DPI, and they are in my mm-hmm. book. Can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. So I always tease my publisher about that and my son. <laughs> believe anything is possible if you believe and dream bigger. I wanted them in there. They're in there. Wonderful. That's beautiful. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, because I believed in me, my Egyptian fantasy came true, is on Amazon.com. In the United States, it's Barnes & Noble, of course. And my publisher is AuthorHouse, uh, AuthorHouse.com. So all of those places, and I'm sure you can find it other places, but those are the main ones. I also have my website. They can read some of my blogs on there and get a little idea of some of the things that I did in Egypt. It's www.randyd. Ward.com. That's R-A-N-D-I-D-W-A-R-D.com. Wonderful. What is next for you? Well, like I said, I'm starting career number three with uh, helping people, I hope, in the future write their books and also being an editor. I've already been editing so many books. During the pandemic, I edited, Johnny, six books for free. One of them was <laughs> over four pages. Long and for our friend Sophie, you know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, this is a great career. I could make some money doing this. And it's not that I'm, I'm making the money to be rich, although that'd be nice. But what I mm-hmm. want to do is to use this money to publish my books, so that I don't have to take mm-hmm. money out of my savings. I also, if I would become wealthy at this, I would love to offer a scholarship for some of my international friends to come and study in the United States. Because, obviously, if they can't get a scholarship, they can't afford to do that. So, like I said, I'm working on Eddie. I'm going to write more books, publish my books, continue to help people around the world. I'm going to be um, a chief editor of two new magazines besides the Morocco Pens. Um, I'm busy, and this is who Mm -hmm. I am. This is what I love to be. I need to be busy and finding ways to help people. Fantastic. Coming back to the United States, you have first-hand information about a tragic event that fell upon the Marshall football team in 1970. Can you share that with us? Yes. I was a senior in 1970, and on November 14th, our Marshall football team had suffered a loss in North Carolina, and they were on their way back in a chartered plane. There were 70 people, 75 people on board football players, except for a few that couldn't travel that day for various reasons, plus some Marshall boosters, some doctors and lawyers and their their husbands and wives and all this. And it was a rainy, horrible night. The chartered pilot really wasn't familiar with Huntington Airport because you have to land between two mountains. And he didn't see the mountain and crashed into it. The plane exploded and all 75 people died. I remember exactly where I was that night. I lost 45 friends on that plane that horrible day. And this year was the 50th anniversary of that horrible plane crash. And actually, I got to um, be a part with a four-page article about me in the Memorial Magazine for the alumni. I also got to be part in the uh, Marshall Alumni Virtual Homecoming 
Mm-hmm. I did a 23-minute video on YouTube, which they use for their part of their you know speakers thing, mm-hmm. on teaching how to write a short story. So this is a very important thing to me, um, and I was so happy that I got to be a part of it. I also was in, there's a movie was, which was done in 2005 called We Are Marshall, Matthew McConaughey and Matthew Fox are in it, plus some other stars. And they filmed part of it in Atlanta at a stadium that was the size of our old Marshall Stadium, and my husband and I got to be extras in the movie. So that was an honor, too. So, yes, it's a tragic memory, uh, the one one that you, you know, never forget. But Marshall survived. Our football team rebuilt. They weren't going to going to rebuild the team. They were going to end the football program. I protested that spring with many others saying this, we are Marshall. That's where the name came from. Mm -hmm. We wanted our football team to continue. It took many years to build our team. In fact, Marshall is the reason why the freshmen are allowed to be on the varsity team. Our Marshall president went to the NCAA and said, we can't get players for our new team. Can you let us have freshmen participate? And they did. We made history in that way, too. And you need to watch the movie, Where Marshall, if you have not done it. It's not just a football uh, movie. It's a, it's a movie about a small town, everything we went through, and the rebuilding of the team, but the rebuilding of a community, okay, from mm-hmm. the ashes services is one of our mottos. Fantastic. That's really wonderful. How has faith, hope, and love contribute to your life's journey? Oh, without faith, I would not be here. I would have not. I would not be walking again. I would not have survived that that accident because they told me I was so bad. I was in ICU for three days of the 18 days I was in the hospital. Without faith, I'd probably still be grieving. I'm still grieving. I'll never forget my husband, but I am trying to move forward because of God. I read the Bible during 2020 to help me rebuild my faith and stop blaming God, which I initially did. I have to admit for taking my love away from me. So faith is very important to me. I'm a very religious person, and I use my faith to get me through many, many things. Um, hope, wow. I'm an eternal optimist and a huge dreamer, as I've said earlier. Even though we're going through such hard times in our world, I still have hope and belief that we'll get through all this and we will survive and find ways to find our joy. I kind of lost my joy. I'm trying to rebuild that joy again. You know, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is fleeting. It's this moment. But joy is inner, you know, inside you. And I'm trying to find my joy again. I was always such a joyful mm-hmm. person. So I have the hope that I will rebuild my joy. And love, oh, my God, love is with everything. I mean, without love, we are nothing. And all the hatred I see on, online and social media, the ugly words people say to each other about politics and religion, breaks my heart. It is, you know, in my stories, Johnny, every one of them have happy endings. Why? Because we need more happy endings. I don't talk about violence. I don't talk about hatred. I only want to spread love and joy, and this is my goal, and I hope that I'm succeeding in doing that. Sorry, I'm getting choked up. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. As we close this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, Would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Okay. Well, it's my life philosophy, and it is copyrighted. Believe. Don't dream big. Dream bigger. The sky is the limit. So reach for the stars. And use your imagination. You can imagine anything you want to be, but then once you have visualized that in your brain, make it happen. Anything is possible if you believe and work hard. Beautiful. That's just beautiful. Dr. Randy, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, February 2nd. My guest will be Michael Bernstein. He is the founder of Bernstein Financial Services and also known as your working out accountant. Since it is that time of the year, Michael and I will be having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey, his new book, The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal Finances, and your concerns about the impact the pandemic has had on your personal finances. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to 
from MyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Dr. Randy, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a very blessed day. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you today, Johnny. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.